today is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were all bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear and each each of us in his own native language, Pythians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of God. Well, let me, let me add my word of welcome from Eddie, to you, a very, very warm welcome to you all. And if you are new here at our church, my name is Martin. I'm one of the ministers here at Christ Church Midrand. We're right in the middle of a series in the book of Acts. We've spent two or three weeks in chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 2 from verse 1 to 13, the passage that has just been, just been read to us. But I'd like you to turn just for a moment to John chapter 1. I want to read a few verses from chapter 1 and chapter 3. We'll pray and then we'll dig into God's Word. It was my privilege last week to be in Lusaka. We've launched uh, Reach Zambia, and so it was my privilege last week to be in Lusaka ordaining Paul Kayumba, who's from Zambia. He trained at George Whitfield College, and uh, he started a brand new church plant in Lusaka. So we really do need to pray for that. And of course, it's my great privilege this morning to be opening God's word here at Christ Church Midrand. Now, before I read from John chapter 1 from verse 29, you may want to turn to that. Let me just add one two words concerning service. Uh, Kate said that you should consider serving. You are not to consider, you are to serve. So uh, uh, that's the mark of a Christian that we are part of a family and we serve one another. And uh, so I really do hope that you'll pick up that leaflet afterwards, look at the various opportunities where you can serve. I'm going to embarrass uh, Royden. Where is Royden? I'm not sure where he is. There he is. I'm going to embarrass Royden. A couple of years ago, many years ago, Royden and Jonah have been part of our church for probably 14, 15 years. Uh, Royden uh, was in uh, economics, and then he became a uh, apprentice here for two years. He then went down to George Whitford College to study, and when they came back on full-time staff, just when they came back, we had a real problem uh, with the parking, 
and uh, we had people fighting. And I was told that there's a lot of fighting. I didn't know this. A lot of fighting uh, with parking and with uh, finding a space. And, of course, my comment was, isn't it good that there's a lot of non-Christians coming to our church? And the comment was, it is not non-Christians. And so the first 18 months that uh, Royden was back on staff, he was on parking duty. So every Sunday morning, 7 o'clock, he was with a team putting out those plastic strips and uh, seeing that everybody had a place to park and then came back at 9 o'clock to help uh, all these wayward sheep not fight with each other over the parking. And what people didn't know was that the man in charge of the parking had a master's in economics and a Ph.D. in theology. And uh, that's what we needed to sort out the parking. (laughs) So, guys, we are servants. We are willing, able to serve and help wherever we can in terms of loving God's people and loving our world. So do have a look at that leaflet afterwards. Let me read now from John chapter 1 from verse 29. John chapter 1 verse 29. 29. Here we have John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 33, the end of the verse, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John chapter 3 from verse 4 we see the same forgiveness of sins and the same work of the Spirit in the life of Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Well, let's bow in prayer for just a moment. Father, we thank you again that we can meet together as your people. We thank you for the great joy we have when together we raise our voices to praise and to worship you and to speak of the wonders of God. We thank you that you are here by your Spirit, who is unseen and invisible, but very real. And so we pray that the Spirit of God may open the Word of God again to us, and that you may draw us to yourself. So we do pray, Lord, that we may know that we have met with the living God through his word and by his spirit. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. If you are a Christian, a born-again Christian, you will know that the Christian life is life in the spirit. You cannot be born as a Christian without the Spirit. You cannot live as a Christian without the Spirit. You cannot grow as a Christian without the, without the Spirit. It's true of the church. The church cannot be born 
without the Holy Spirit. The church cannot grow without the Holy Spirit. The church cannot witness and do works of service without the Holy Spirit. Most of us have seen, most of us have seen a dead body. What is a dead body? Well, it's a body without breath. It's a corpse. Well, when you have a church without the Spirit, you have a corpse. And sadly, we've probably, most of us, visited a church like that, where there is no Spirit and there is no Word. Notice in chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 33, the twofold ministry of Christ. Christ came for two main purposes, as stated here in chapter 1. The first purpose, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sin. The second part of his ministry, the second part of his twofold ministry, is in verse 33. Behold the Lamb of God who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came for those two primary works. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who forgives you, who cleanses you, who washes you. Behold the Lamb of God who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's why he came. That's why the Christian life is a life in the Spirit. Now let's have a look at chapter 3, the passage I read about Nicodemus, that well-known passage where Jesus speaks to this religious leader and he tells him, uh, that uh, the Christian life is life in the Spirit. Notice verse, verse, uh, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can you be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So once again, you see there the twofold ministry of Jesus. Water is the idea of cleansing, of washing, washing of impurities and sin. You need to be cleansed. You need to be forgiven. You need to be born again. What does that include? That includes being washing, washed and cleansed. And secondly, it includes the Holy Spirit. So we sometimes think of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speaking about the ministry of Jesus and then when we get to the book of Acts, we think, now we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, that is incorrect. The ministry of Jesus was to forgive us and to cleanse us and to pour out the Holy Spirit. So here in Acts chapter 2, which we'll turn to in just a moment, what we have here is the culmination, the fulfillment, the apex of the ministry of Jesus. He came, he died upon the cross, God raised him from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and from heaven he pours out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost to begin the new age of the Spirit, the new age of the church. There we see the twofold ministry of Jesus. We are not to see the book of Acts as being separate from the ministry of Jesus. We are not to say, well, the Gospels talk about Jesus and the book of Acts talks about the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the ministry of Jesus. Is it, it's the Spirit of Jesus who is being poured out. It's the Spirit of God who is being poured out. Jesus is fulfilling his ministry to rescue us and save us. Here in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, 
Here we have it fleshed out with Nicodemus. Jesus says flesh gives birth to flesh, talking about his natural birth, his human birth, his physical birth. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. You can't be a Christian unless you have been born of the spirit. That is what the spirit does. He causes us to be born again. That's what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 3. Being born again includes two things, the forgiveness of sins and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So what that means is you can't be a Christian unless you are born again. How are you born again? Well, it's supernatural. It's a miracle. It's what God does. God causes you to be born again by his Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The reason you have been born again, the reason you are a Christian, is because of the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised that he would pour out. It's a culmination of the ministry of Christ when he pours out his Holy Spirit. So, when you are, when you are born again... It cannot happen unless the Holy Spirit has invaded your life. Unless the Holy Spirit, and, 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 unless you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is what happens when you are born again. It's the work of the Spirit that causes you to come to faith in Christ. A couple of years ago, I had a meeting in Cape Town, and uh, the meeting ended on the Saturday. So Saturday afternoon, I was at the Cape Town airport waiting for my flight having a cup of coffee at the Mug and Bean, and uh, as per normal, I hadn't finished my sermon for that Sunday. You remember that very bad sermon I preached? And um, you think to yourself, no, Martin, there were many. Anyway, um, so, so I'm at the table drinking my coffee. My, so my Bible's there, my notes are there. I'm trying to work on the passage. I'm trying to get the sermon together. And the young waitress asked me what I'm doing, and I told her that I'm a pastor, umfundis, and uh, I'm working on my sermon, and then I ask her, are you a Christian? And so she pauses, and she says, yes, I am a Christian, but I'm not a born-again Christian. Now, my dear friends, that's an oxymoron. You can't be a Christian without being born again, and you cannot be born again unless the Holy Spirit has given you new birth. Now, you may say to me, Martin, I can't actually remember when I was born again. How do I know that I've been born again? Well, let me say to you, none of us can, can remember when we were physically born. None of us. I heard a, a British talk show where the DJ asked the singer, um, he asked him, where were you born? And the singer says, I was born in Birmingham. And the DJ asked him, why were you born in Birmingham? And he says, well, I wanted to be close to my mother. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which, I thought, which I thought was a pretty good answer. <laughs> now, we can't remember when we were naturally born. None of us can. And most of us can't remember when we were born again. But we know the results. We know the fruit. So I can't remember my natural birth, but I'm alive. There's results. There's consequences. There's fruit. I've been born again. I can't remember the actual day or moment. There was an actual day. There was an actual moment, but I can't remember it. But I can see the fruit. I can see the results. So you may ask the question, how do I know that I'm born again? I can't remember that day. Well, what are the fruits? I'll tell you what the fruits are. 
you are born again by the Holy Spirit. That means you long after holiness. That means you repent of unholiness. You are born of the Spirit of truth. You have a longing for truth, the truth of God's word. That's why you're here this morning. You want to hear from God's word. That is a longing in your heart. That is a consequence of having been born again. If you are born of the Spirit, there will be the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul tells us in Galatians what the fruit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Makes your mouth water, doesn't it? That's the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're a Christian, not in perfect measure, but in a significant measure, that will be fruit in our life. So you will know that the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again. Now, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. The question is, where did it start? Where did it start for us as believers? Where did it start for the church? And the answer is at Pentecost. The answer is in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2. And let's have a look at how this new age of the Spirit started. Where did it begin? How did it begin? Let me read verse 1 to 4. Two principles, very simple. What happened at Pentecost? And the first point will be by far the longest. The second point is what does the Pentecost mean? So we're going to look at those two things. What happened at Pentecost? And number two, what does it mean? But let me read again from verse 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, let me clear up a few things here in verse 1 that will help us set the scene and the background and the context. Pentecost was one of the three main festivals, and it still is in Judaism. There are three main festivals, the Passover, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and Pentecost. Pentecost takes its name from the Greek word pente, which means 50. So we sometimes use that terminology at the Olympics. Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. And Pentecost was started as a celebration of the end of the grain harvest. It was a harvest festival. So at the end of the harvesting of the grain, and you have a strong Israel, had a strong agricultural uh, culture, um, at the end of the grain harvest, there would be a festival called Pentecost a festival of thanksgiving, and it was a sense of fulfillment, a sense of culmination, of completeness, was Pentecost. So it's most appropriate that God and Jesus pour out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, because that is the fulfillment, that is the climax, the culmination of the ministry of Jesus. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 33. Chapter 2, verse 33 Peter is preaching after the outpouring of the uh, Spirit. You have the sermon of 
of Peter, and in verse 33, Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, speaking of Jesus, speaking of his ascension, after his ascension, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So here we have the completion of Christ's ministry. As I said before, we are not to think of the ministry of Christ as the Gospels and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the book of Acts. No, the book of Acts is the culmination. It's the fulfillment of the ministry of Christ. He has now gone through his death, his resurrection, he's ascended, he's seated at the right hand of God, and he pours out his Spirit. The Father and Son pour out the Spirit onto God's people. In fact, that is taught throughout the Scriptures. This is not something sudden or new. So the prophet Joel in the Old Testament, he prophesied in the last days, talking about the Messianic age. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. It was prophesied. It was expected. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36 which is so helpful, Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Here here we have the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel prophesying about the coming messianic age. What will happen when the Messiah comes? What will he do? And you will notice that 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 the vocabulary here fits in with John chapter 3, John chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. Because those are fulfillments of what the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And we see that in Acts chapter 2 with all those nations gathered. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean from all your unclean uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. You see how that is Nicodemus terminology, vocabulary. I will give you a new spirit, I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." So the Old Testament is telling us when the Messiah comes, what will he do? He will forgive you, he will cleanse you, he will wash you, and he will fill you with his spirit. Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends into heaven, Jesus promises the same thing. Acts chapter 1 verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Same thing, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what do we have here at Pentecost? What do we have here in Acts chapter 2? We have a fulfillment of God's promise that one day... His Messiah will come, his rescuer will come to rescue us from our brokenness, from our depravity, from our sinfulness, from the brokenness of this world. And what we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia this past week is evidence of Genesis 3, of the fall, of how sin ravages and destroys us and destroys our world. And God has sent his son to rescue us from ourselves 
to rescue us from our sin and then to fill us with his Holy Spirit. And so here in Acts chapter 2, at the culmination of the ministry of Jesus, he now sends down his Holy Spirit to start the new age of the Spirit, the church, the people of God, awaiting his return. So in terms of salvation history, we've had creation, Genesis 1 and 2. We've had the fall, Genesis 3. We've then had God's rescue act through Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the kings, the prophets. He sends Jesus to rescue us from our sin. And part of his rescue act is to die for our sin and to pour out his spirit to empower us to live for him until his return. So the only thing we're waiting for in terms of salvation history, we've had the We've had creation, we've had the fall, we've had uh, God's uh, act of redemption, we've had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All we await now is the return of Christ. And that's what's happening, the outpouring of the Spirit, here in Acts chapter 2. All right, let's have a look at um, verse 1. Just quickly, let me pick up one or two things, verse 1, to help us understand what's happening here again. We read there, chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound. So the first question, who, who is the they? Well, we know from verse uh, chapter, chapter, two, chapter 1, verse 13, it was the 12 disciples, or 11 disciples, 12 minus Judas, they were there. We know from, from, um, from chapter, uh, further on, we know that, that uh, uh, where am I? Yeah, there we go. Chapter, chapter 1, we know from verse 13. There's the 12, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, there's the brother of Jesus, there are other woman disciples, and then we are told that there's 120 Verse 15, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So here we have, uh, Jesus spoke to thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, but in the end there were only 120 who believed him, who knew that he was the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, and they were gathered, gathered in the upper room, waiting for the outpouring of the Spirit. They were scared. They were frightened. And then suddenly, God the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. You'll notice verse 13, they are in the upper room. And there's just a fascinating possibility here that it's the same upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper. And we pick that up from John chapter 12, John chapter 13, where they are in the upper room having the Last Supper. After the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, Jesus meets them in the upper room. He meets Thomas in the upper room. Now they are waiting after the ascension for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised in chapter 1, verse 4, and they are, verse 13, they are in the upper room. And then, and here's the fascinating thing, and then in Acts chapter 12, it seems, we're not 100% sure, but it's very, very probable that the same room had become the headquarters of the early church. Peter had been in prison. God rescued him, and he went 
to this home, very probably where the upper room was. And we are told that the, that the owner of the home was Mary, and she was the mother of John Mark. And John Mark was the author of the Gospel of Mark. And very probably John Mark and Mary were born in Cyrene, in Libya. So the fascinating thought, certainly for me, is that the headquarters of the first church, of the early church, was in an African home. It was Mary and her son, John Mark. It seems that her husband had died, who had opened her home. They had a large home. It must have been a large home because the upper room had 120 people. There weren't many of those in Jerusalem. And there we find the headquarters of the early church enjoying this huge hospitality of an African woman. What a wonderful idea. This is where the church started. These were the people God used, ordinary people like you and me. Then you'll notice that there are three supernatural signs. Notice there, verse 2, they heard the sound of a blowing wind. Notice verse 3, they saw what seemed to be fire. Notice verse 4, they experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues. So the noise wasn't wind, it sounded like wind. The sight wasn't fire, but it resembled fire. The languages weren't ordinary, but they were understandable. Now for those of us who know our Old Testament, and certainly the original readers of the book of Acts, remember Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, they would have known that these are signs of a visitation of God, a special visitation of God, a special act of God. So you remember in Exodus chapter 3 when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and spoke to him, there were flames of fire. You remember in the Exodus when the Red Sea was parted supernaturally, it was a miracle. There was a strong east wind blowing and parting the Red Sea. You remember when the nation of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years, God led them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. In John chapter 3, Jesus talks to, talks to Nicodemus and he talks about the spirit and the wind. So when we read these supernatural events happening here in Acts chapter 2, we are being told that what we have here is a special visitation of God, a special act of God. This is the start of the new era of the Spirit of God. Here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus lives amongst his people, not physically, but spiritually. You remember when he said to his disciples, he said to them, it is good that I go away. You remember that? And they thought, and we think, why is it good that he goes away? We don't want him to go away. Well, of course he had to go away because physically he could only be in one place at one time. Now he has sent his spirit. The Father will come to you. I will come to you. The spirit of God comes to you and Jesus is amongst his people everywhere all the time because he's no longer with us physically. No, he's with us by his spirit. So here we have a special act of God. This is supernatural. This is not the natural. This is not ordinary. This is supernatural. But of course, that's not a problem for us because we're talking about God. 
Surely God can act in supernatural ways. And when he's acting in specific ways, there will be signs of his supernatural presence. And so we see the sound like wind and what resembles fire. And then notice these other languages, these other tongues. Let's have a look at that, verse 4, because it's caused so much confusion among so many people. So let me unpack that very briefly. Notice there verse 4. Let me read from verse 4. So if you can follow in your Bible, that will be very helpful. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Now, if you have a look there at verse 4, and the word is repeated, verse 8, and once again, verse 11, Luke talks about other tongues, other languages. It's the Greek word glossa or glossolalia. And it means a mother tongue. It means a real language. It means they were speaking in a dialect understood to other people. So obviously what had happened, the 120 were in the upper room. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They started speaking in other tongues. They then went outside into the, into the space, the public space of Jerusalem. And as they were speaking of the wonders of God, the people there coming from different nations heard them speak. So what is happening here? What are these other languages? What are these other tongues? Well, let me first answer that negatively. Peter tells us, verse 13, it's not that they drunk. You know how drunk people can... Yes, you all know. Um, Peter says, no, 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 they're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. The pubs only open at 10 o'clock. No COVID. Um, Secondly, it's not a miracle of hearing. It's a miracle of speaking. So notice there verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's also not incoherent language. It's not a babbling. It's not unintelligible ecstatic speech. It's not noises which don't correspond with any known language. No, it's quite obvious. These 120 disciples from Galilee, they probably could only speak Aramaic and Greek. And they had an accent. They came from Galilee. People could recognize their accent. They were now speaking in the languages of all the peoples gathered for Pentecost in Jerusalem. Notice there verse 9 to 11. There are 15 different groups of people. And each of them heard 
the wonders of God. They heard the gospel, the story of Jesus in their own language, in their own dialect, in their own mother tongue. That's the word glossa. That's why they're so amazed. They're perplexed. Verse 6, notice there, they're amazed, they bewildered. Notice verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed. What does this mean? Well, what it meant was that they were speaking the languages of these people. God had supernaturally come upon them. They hadn't learned these languages They hadn't studied these languages, and each one of them was speaking in a different language, a different dialect, so that people from that area could understand what they were saying. It's interesting, just by the way, that in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul talks about speaking in tongues, the same word is used, glossa, glossolalia, another language, another mother tongue. It's a known language. It's not incoherent babbling. It's not sounds which have no corresponding language. Look again, verse 9 to 11. Here he speaks of at least 15 groups of people. It's not a list of all the nations of the world, but it represents all the nations of the world. And in modern uh, geographic boundaries, it would would include uh, the Kurds, the Jews, the Italians from Rome, It would be people from Iran, from Iraq, from Syria, from Turkey. It would be Africans from Egypt, from Libya. The point being, so the question is, what is the point? Well, the point is that God wanted to make quite sure that this new covenant, this new messianic age, this age of the Spirit, the culmination of the work of Jesus, is no longer confined to Jews from Jerusalem or Judea or Galilee. It's no longer confined to circumcised people born from the line of Abraham. No, Christ's kingdom is for all nations, all races, all peoples. It's an international kingdom. It's a cosmopolitan kingdom. My dear friends, we have branches of our organization in every country of this world. We are a multinational company. We have branches in every, almost every tribe, every language, every village, every town. Because that's the nature of the kingdom of God. It's made up of people of different nations and races and people. In fact, if you think about it, think about, uh, think about Genesis. It's a reversal. It's a dramatic reversal of the curse God placed on Babel. Afterwards, go and have a look, go and read Genesis 11, the story of Babel, where the people of this earth aspired to be gods, aspired to reach up into heaven and and replace the God of the heaven and the earth. And so God in judgment scattered them, and God in judgment confused their languages. That was God's judgment upon earth. Now in Jerusalem, the nations are no longer scattered. Now with the coming of Jesus, the nations are coming back together again. Now with the coming of the Messianic age, this language barrier is supernaturally overcome as a sign that all nations will be united in Christ. It's a reversal of Babel. 
And then we read in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and I'll just read it to you, where John has a vision of heaven, the final culmination of the mission of Jesus. And there in heaven, we read, there's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there we have the final culmination where God gathers all his people. Because of the fall, because of Genesis 3, because of sin, because of man's desire to usurp the authority of God, and it's preeminently seen there at Babel, God judges the human race. He confuses their languages. He scatters the nations. But he's not only a God of judgment, he's a God of grace. And so he sends his son to rescue us and to gather us together once again. So that even though we come from different races and tribes and peoples and languages, we are one in Christ. And every language, we don't speak one language. No, in heaven we speak in different languages. Every language matters. Every culture matters. But in another sense, it doesn't matter. Because together we are praising God. Our voices are united to speak of the wonders of God. A reversal of the fall, a reversal of Babel. And here we have the first step to heaven. So at Babel, earth proudly tries to ascend to heaven. And at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, heaven humbly descends to earth to serve us and to draw us to himself. Let me just make one comment, one last comment, before we get to the last principle. We'll be done by about one o'clock. Is that all right, Royden? I mean, Royden, is that all right? If we just, yeah, no, we won't. Give me five, six minutes. Just one last comment on Acts 2. When I was a young Christian, a teenager, I belonged to a wonderful church. It was a Pentecostal church, and uh, wonderful people, and they loved me, and they discipled me, and I have an eternal debt to them. Um, but, but in one area, they, they were teaching incorrectly. Um, that doesn't mean that God wasn't using them and, and you're wonderful, wonderful people. But they taught incorrectly that Acts 2 is normative for all Christians. They were saying that uh, you come to Christ, you are born again, and then you've got to wait and have a second experience of God often called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they were saying, Martin, it's good that you've come to Christ, it's good that you're born again, but you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit as a second subsequent experience. Now, my dear friends, that is not true. It is true that God may deal with all of us in different ways, in different experiences. I'm not knocking that at all. Sure, God will use different events, some painful, some joyful to work in our lives and to draw us to himself. But it is not true to say that you are only a first-class Christian if you have had two separate events. What we have here in Acts 2 is not normative. So let me show that to you. In fact, there are two groups of people here. You have the 120 and then you have the 3,000. The 120 is not normative. The 3,000 is normative. 
So have a look at chapter Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Here we have, we've had the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, Pentecost chapter 2, Peter preaching. At the end of that, um, we read in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 were the 120 The forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit were two separate events. At the end of Acts 2, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they are one event. And that will be our experience. Let me try and draw that here on the whiteboard to help you understand, because there's a lot of confusion about that, and I don't want you to be confused. All right, here we have a picture of the 120. Here's the 120. They have to wait and live through the death, the resurrection, the ascension. They have to wait for Pentecost. They have to live through this. Because they live before the death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost of Jesus. Obviously, historically, they had to wait and they had to live through this process. However, the 3,000 are over here. And that's where you and I are. We live after the death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. So we don't have to wait for these things to happen. No, we receive forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit at the same time. And that happens when you are born again. When you are born again, you are born by the Spirit of God. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You may not know the exact moment or the time, but that is when you receive the Holy Spirit. That's when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to the 3,000. Quite obviously, the 120 had to wait for these things to happen. We live together with the 3,000 after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so we experience both the events of forgiveness and fullness of the Holy Spirit at one event called being born again. So if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because you cannot be born again without the Holy Spirit. All right, so I hope that helps you. Let's move to our very last point, and I close with this. What does Pentecost mean? So the first question is, what happened at Pentecost? Three things. Number one, the coming of the Holy Spirit, as we've seen, was international in its scope. So no longer were the people of God, the covenant people of God, only Jews coming from Jerusalem, Judea, circumcised DNA, children of Abraham. No, the people of God, the kingdom of God, 
is made up of all nations, all peoples, all languages, all races. What does that mean to us? It means to us as Christians, we ought always to oppose apartheid, racism, tribalism, wherever we find it, but especially in the church. The church ought to be a picture of how God has overcome our differences and our barriers. It's the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit to cause us to be a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multilinguistic people of God. Now, now, I hesitate to say this because we don't want to be proud, but God has been so gracious to us at Christ Church Midran because that's what we have here. It is not perfect. We have not arrived. But, yo, God has been so gracious to us in building together a people, his people, made up of different languages and cultures and races and backgrounds. And my dear friends, we need to understand it. It is unique. You don't find this kind of thing in many places in our country. I'm not saying you don't find it anywhere else. You do, but not in many places. It is something special. It's something unique. It's something we need to treasure. It's something we need to protect because it's a witness of the gospel when despite our differences we can be together. So sometimes, uh, you will know this, sometimes, so we all come from different backgrounds, different racial groups, different cultural groups, sometimes there'll be some things that you find a little bit awkward because it's not part of your culture. Well, my dear friends, you need to bear with, we need to bear with each other because of the greater good, which is our unity in Christ. A couple of years ago, or over the years, we've had white people leaving this church, and they tell me they're leaving because the church is too black. We've had black people telling me we're leaving this church because it's too white. And I'm thinking to myself, perhaps we're getting something right. Um, But it's a precious thing. But it can be a fragile thing, which is why we need to protect it. We need to bear with each other so that we can be a witness as a cosmopolitan, multiracial, multiethnic people of God. Secondly, the coming of the Holy Spirit is supernatural in its character. Now, we sometimes forget that the Christian life is supernatural. It's not natural. We forget that it's God, the Holy Spirit, that has to convert people. That's why we need to pray that people are converted. It will only take a miracle to convert them. That's why we pray. We forget, we sometimes think of church as parking and buildings and programs and finances and planning and managing. Well, of course those things are important, but ultimately it's a spiritual organism led by the Spirit of God. And that's why we need to pray for one another. We need to pray for our church. I hope you pray for Christ Church Midran every day. I hope you pray for our leaders, that they may be wise and faithful. We need to remember that we're in a spiritual warfare. We forget that often. So we're involved in some conflict, maybe in the church, it may be amongst uh, family members, it may be in a marriage. And we forget that actually we're in spiritual warfare. That it's not just me and my sibling fighting. No, the devil is here. 
there is a third party. Remember that. It's not just me and my life group leader fighting. No, no, no. There's a third partner, party, trying to break down the unity of the people of God. The church of Jesus Christ is spiritual. It's supernatural. We're dependent on God, the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to pray every day, don't we? For ourselves and our marriages and our families and our work and our church. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, who is real, will intervene, will guide, will lead, will comfort, will help. Third thing, last thing, the coming of the Holy Spirit is personal in application. Interesting, all of the 120, the Holy Spirit came upon each, each one and filled them. So the question is, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you been born again? If you haven't, you can't do it yourself, by the way. You, you can't make yourself being born again. So what must I do, you say, Martin? You ask God to make you born again. It's a work of God. Ask God to intervene in your life. Ask God to work in your life. Ask God to give you the new birth. Ask God to give you power to serve him. Well, let's pray. Father, we do pray that you will forgive us when we think of the Christian life, when we think of our relationships, when we think of our church in merely earthly terms. Forgive us, Lord, when we don't call upon you as we ought. Forgive us when we don't depend upon you and your spirit to guide us and lead us. Father, there may be some amongst us here who have been living in the shadows or perhaps even walking in the darkness, avoiding you, pushing you out of their lives. I pray, Lord, that this morning they may realize that there's no real life except life in the Spirit. Lord, help all of us to turn and repent from our sins from our brokenness, from our lukewarmness. Cleanse us, wash us, and fill us again and again and again with your Spirit. So, Lord, work amongst us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.